The fact is that much of gay and lesbian history is grim. And not wanting to know about your own history will not make it go away. But it is also true that the social ill of homophobia that Radcliffe Hall addresses so centrally in her book is still with us today. Different is special. The hate is organized. It's fueled by, you know, white supremacy groups and hate groups that come in with intentions of intimidation and using homophobic and transphobic slurs and inciting violence. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappell. Singapore to repeal ban on sex between men, fresh waters flow from the well of loneliness, and drag queens defend their contested story hours. All that and more this week now that you've found This Way Out. I'm Joe Bainline. And I'm M.R. Raquel. With News Wrap. A summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending August 27, 2022. Singapore's ban on sex between men will soon be over. Prime Minister Lee Sien Long went on live television on August 22nd to announce that his government will finally repeal Penal Code Section 377A, which punishes gay male sex with up to two years in prison. Lesbians were never included. Lee also made it clear during his annual National Day speech, even as we repeal Section 377A, we will uphold and safeguard the institution of marriage. Under the law, only marriages between one man and one woman are recognized in Singapore. Some queer activists believe that the Prime Minister was trying to mollify his nation's religious conservatives. An alliance of more than 80 churches called the repeal announcement an extremely regrettable decision, which will have a profound impact on the culture that our children and future generations of Singaporeans will live in, according to Reuters. Equality advocates believe that impact will be positive and celebrated 377A's long-overdue repeal after decades of work. A media statement from a coalition of more than 20 queer rights groups hailed the hard-won victory, but also lamented the Prime Minister's mixed messages. They called the win the first step on a long road towards full equality for LGBTQ plus people. The small Southeast Asian city-state kept the 1938 British colonial era Penal Code Section 377 when it gained its independence in 1965. Most of its sex regulations were repealed in 2007, but the gay-specific 377A was left intact. Challenges to the law have been repeatedly rebuffed by Singapore's High Court. In a case decided earlier this year, judges concluded that 377A was harmless because it is not being enforced. Activists objected to having it on the books at all. Prime Minister Lee set no timetable for repeal, so it's anyone's guess how long the process might take. A veteran Hong Kong gay activist has lost another effort to have his U.S. same-gender marriage recognized at home. The Hong Kong Court of Appeal issued a ruling on August 24th, reaffirming that Hong Kong law will continue to define civil marriage only as a voluntary union for life of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. 
Jimmy Sham legally married his husband in New York in 2013 and has been trying to get it recognized in Hong Kong since 2018. The judges of the appeals court reasoned that it would also not be fair to recognize bi-national same-gender marriages while not allowing access to the civil institution for queer couples domestically. Attorney Hector Pun argued that refusing to recognize Sham's legally performed marriage to his male spouse violates Article 37 of Hong Kong's Basic Law, which states that the freedom of marriage of Hong Kong residents and their right to raise a family freely shall be protected by law. The appeals court rejected that defense and interpreted that law to apply to heterosexual couples only. The judges wrote, any suggestion otherwise is divorced from reality. Sham has yet to announce if he will challenge his latest legal setback in Hong Kong's court of final appeal. The government of Vietnam has concluded that LGBTQ people are not diseased. An early August statement issued by the health ministry urged medical professionals to be fair and respectful and not discriminate against LGBTQ people. It reads, Do not consider homosexuality, bisexuality, or being transgender a disease. Do not coerce members of these groups into medical treatment. They cannot be cured, nor need to be cured and cannot be converted in any way. This is the latest advance in Vietnam's measured acceptance of queer people. While there are still no anti-bias or hate crime protections for LGBTQ people and no legal marriage rights, the government has removed outright bans on and fines for same-gender couples who conduct marriage ceremonies. It has also approved the right to change legal gender on government documents. Vietnam's Law on Marriage and Family is scheduled for a 10-year review in 2024, according to the Sydney Star Observer. Equality activists want to use that opportunity to challenge laws that deny marriage equality, and the effort is already underway. A petition supporting Vietnamese marriage equality called I Agree has received more than a million signatures since it was launched August 10th, Al Jazeera reports. Survivors of conversion therapy in New Zealand are now eligible for a formal apology from misleading practitioners or even financial compensation. The Human Rights Commission announced a free and confidential program on August 18th. It will also provide mediation if necessary. It's a welcome 10th anniversary gift for Inside Out, one of New Zealand's leading queer advocacy groups. Managing Director Tabby Besley took pride in the process that led to the government initiative and told New Zealand TV's One News, What's Next? It feels like it's been made a priority that um, we, yeah, we've been listened to. Um, they've really involved survivors in the development of the service. I think a really big um, area that still needs to be addressed in this process is actually um, support for survivors of historical and um, future conversion practices. Former pastor and conversion therapy survivor Andre Afamasaga is the Commission's Conversion Practices Support Services Manager. He called the initiative a significant milestone for the LGBTQ community. In his words, it's a pathway to acknowledge the experiences of survivors and an opportunity to gain some closure. It will help many to begin healing and move forward from their experiences. In other news, a temporary injunction preventing Arkansas's government from denying gender-affirming medical care to transgender young people has been upheld. The St. Louis, Missouri-based 8th 
U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals backed a district judge's order to halt enforcement of Act 626. The law bans the treatments for those under the age of 18. The August 25th ruling by a three-judge panel said, in part, because the minor's sex at birth determines whether or not the minor can receive certain types of medical care under the law, Act 626 discriminates on the basis of sex. The ACLU challenged the Arkansas law on behalf of four transgender minors and their families and two doctors who provide gender-affirming health care to young people. The often life-saving care generally involves such medications as puberty blockers and hormone therapy. It's important to emphasize that gender-affirming surgery is not the normal protocol, as is frequently claimed by anti-trans politicians. Arkansas's Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson vetoed Act 626 last year, but the Republican-dominated state legislature overrode him. He presciently warned that the state would become embroiled in expensive lawsuits. The same district court judge who issued the temporary injunction to stop enforcement of Act 626 will preside over a trial in October to determine if the injunction should be made permanent. Finally, A conservative Christian church is doing penance for mounting an unauthorized version of Lin-Manuel Miranda's hit musical, Hamilton. The Door Christian Fellowship Ministries in the Texas southern border town of McAllen posted its homegrown production to YouTube. Some horrified viewers tipped off Hamilton rights holders when scenes appeared on Twitter with lyrics changed to include fundamentalist Christian themes. A post-curtain sermonette condemns same-gender sex, equating it with alcoholism and drug addiction that can be healed by Jesus. Miranda was grateful to those who blew the whistle on the offensive and unauthorized production. He wrote, Now lawyers do their work. Virtually the entire multi-award-winning original company of Hamilton has been vocally pro-LGBTQ, so it's not surprising that a cease-and-desist letter was sent. A lawsuit was considered. The McAllen Church posted an Instagram apology this week, claiming that Pastor Roman Gutierrez had assured congregational officials that the changes had been approved by the license holders. An undisclosed amount of monetary damages was promised. The folks at Hamilton are donating the money to queer supportive businesses in southern Texas and to the LGBTQ South Texas Equality Project. That's News Wrap. Global Queer News with Attitude for the week ending August 27, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappell, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm M.R. Raquel. Stay healthy. And I'm Joe Bainline. Stay safe. We have a really big thriving chapter in Mexico with like 12 different chapters under them. We're in Sweden, Berlin, Denmark, and Tokyo. And we just had an inquiry about the Netherlands. The drag queens and their never-ending story hour after a classic story from another age. The year was 1928, 
and the first explicitly lesbian novel was born. Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness has a reputation for being horribly depressing. But here's what This Way Out queer life and literature correspondent Janet Mason found when she picked it up in 2002. I had been meaning to read The Well of Loneliness for the longest time. It is, after all, a lesbian classic. But as someone who came out in the early 80s, I am most definitely a member of the Ruby Fruit Jungle generation. I felt fortunate at the time that I had a coming-out book to read that was uplifting, funny, and as I recall from the three times I read it, often downright hilarious. Rena Mae Brown wrote and published Ruby Fruit in the mid-1970s, and when I talk to lesbians and a few gay men who came out before then, they tell me that The Well of Loneliness, which was first published in 1928, was the first lesbian book they read. As one friend told me, the only lesbian literature available, aside from the pulp novels, which were hard to find, was Sappho and Radcliffe Hall. Everyone told me that The Well of Loneliness was horribly depressing. I didn't doubt them for a minute. For starters, consider the title. But when I finally got around to reading it, I found it extremely well-written and gripping and right on in its portrayals of the trappings and clues of queer life. Furthermore, Hall's incisive analysis of the debilitating effects of internalized homophobia is absolutely brilliant. Chances are that if I had read The Well of Loneliness shortly after coming out, I too would have found it depressing. But reading the book in my early and perhaps somewhat jaded 40s gave me a completely different perspective. It reminded me of the English novels I had read in my youth, complete with a country manor, rolling green hills, nannies and nursemaids, and emotionally distant parents. But in this case, the protagonist, a girl named Stephen, is a tomboy child who falls in love with her housemaid and her horse, and who, surprise, surprise, grows up to be a lesbian. Essentially, what Radcliffe Hall, whose birth name was Marguerite, gives us is a coming-out story. And as the book draws to its inevitable conclusion, I found myself rooting for the same sequence of events that my friends found depressing. In the book, Stephen is involved in a lesbian marriage with a woman ten years her junior who has no interests or life of her own outside of idle preoccupations. Stephen, who, in this autobiographical novel, is a writer, is first so in love with Mary that she cannot part from her to pursue her writing. Later, as Stephen attempts to get back to her work, Mary draws her away from it with her endless need to be entertained. Through a sequence of events which involves ostracism from the straight members of their social class and portrayals of the underworld gay bars which Mary insists she needs to go to dance and socialize, Radcliffe Hall portrays a world that will certainly do in the delicate young character of Mary. As Stephen watches her young lover grow hard and bitter and prone to alcoholism, she concocts a plan to marry her off to a nice young man. When a friend of mine bemoaned the fact that she wanted the two women to stay together in the end, I tell her that I was really hoping that Stephen would move on. In the world of Happily Ever After, I am definitely drawn to a partnership of equals. If the ending alone puts the well of loneliness in the depressing category, then it is joined by another pioneering gay-themed novel, Giovanni's Room, written by James Baldwin and published in 1956. In this book, too, one of the main characters walks off with a member of the opposite sex in the end. A friend of mine who works in the store by the same name as the book tells me that young gay men come in and say, Giovanni's Room, who wants to read that old depressing book? The fact is that much of gay and lesbian history is grim. 
and not wanting to know about your own history will not make it go away. But it is also true that the social ill of homophobia that Radcliffe Hall addresses so centrally in her book is still with us today. Stephen's mother, who said she would rather see her daughter dead at her feet than accept her lesbianism, invites her daughter but not her lover to her home. Stephen imagines this scenario if she insists that her lover were brought home. The feeling of guilt at so much a hand touch, the pretense of carelessness, quite usual friendship. Mary, don't look at me as though you cared. You did this evening. Remember my mother. Hall then sums up this all-too-familiar situation with the explanation. Intolerable quagmire of lies and deceit, the degrading of all that to them was sacred. In yet another scenario, which still applies more than 70 years later, Radcliffe Hall analyzes the nuances that can make an individual's queerness visible. The timber of a voice, the build of an ankle, the texture of a hand, a movement, a gesture. When The Well of Loneliness was published in 1928, Radcliffe Hall was already an established novelist who had won several distinguished awards with her previous novel, Adam's Breed. The Well of Loneliness was received with great controversy. A British book reviewer wrote, I would rather give a healthy boy or a healthy girl a vial of prussic acid than this novel. It was tried on charges of obscenity in both Britain, where it was banned, and in the U.S., where it was vindicated. International publicity boosted sales to more than 100,000 copies. Radcliffe Hall felt that her entire existence was put on trial, and with it the concept of lesbianism itself. Radcliffe Hall's message was a plea for tolerance and for an end to bigotry. The trials and the slanderous personal attacks took their toll on the author. Never again did she write a novel addressing the theme of love between women. Years after this pioneering work was published, Radcliffe Hall said in a lecture that if any author adds but one stone, however small, to the building of a better civilization, then that in itself is a glorious thing. Radcliffe Hall gave us not only a stone, but a cornerstone on which an entire community could be built. With commentary on Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness, and with thanks to Deborah D'Alessandro for production assistance, this is Janet Mason for This Way Out. Hi, this is Janice Ian, and you're listening to This Way Out. Oh, my. This Way Out is supported in part by contributions from our listeners. Some give a little each month. Some make a larger annual contribution. More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. Thank you. You ain't going to get this nowhere else. And that's the truth. Everyone is different, and everyone is not bad, said Scooter, who is a turtle. Different is special. It's okay to be gay. We are different in many ways. Doesn't matter if you're a boy, girl, or somewhere in between. We all are part of one big family. What started as a pleasant afternoon of family fun has turned into a firestorm of misguided hate across the U.S., and that fire has jumped the pond to land embers in the U.K. A drag queen story hour in Westgate, Oxford, was threatened by angry protesters 
but they were far outnumbered by supporters who formed a ring around the venue. That kind of scene is very different from the tale told to KLOP Austin, Texas, Liz Ross by Drag Queen Story Hour Executive Director Jonathan Hamilt. Jonathan, how did Drag Queen Story Hour come into fruition? Well, Drag Queen Story Hour was first first in San Francisco and the Bay Area in 2016. Writer and author Michelle T, who's a queer activist and writer, was a young parent at the time. Loved taking their kids just for the story time and was trying to think of how it could be more queered up. So she was like, oh, what better to have the people hosting the story hour than drag queens? So drag queens in the Castro Library were the first story hours, and it was under Radar Production, produced the first story hour in the Castro. And that's how we started. And it's been seven years now. Those are our origin stories. When did you get involved? About a year after San Francisco was underway, I was visiting San Fran as a young drag queen in like an advertisement for it. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to check it out. It was Honey Mahogany from RuPaul's Drag Race, like way back when she was hosting. And all the kids were yelling and screaming her name and like chanting. And she came out this big, beautiful thing. Everyone was clapping and she read and we, they were doing sing-alongs and like a craft activity. I was like, this is amazing. I want to like bring this to New York City with help from Rachel Amy in New York. I helped co-found the New York City chapter. And that was in 2016. How many chapters are there now? We have about 50 chapters. And I want to say, 46 states and we have international yeah we have an international presence as well we have a really big thriving chapter in mexico with like 12 different chapters under them we're in sweden berlin denmark and tokyo and we just had an inquiry about the netherlands that's fantastic especially in such a short period of time how many volunteers does that mean you have how does that work it really depends across the nation. Like, you know, in New York City, drag, there's enough demand for it to be a full-time job that people do drag eight days a week. And other places, say like Omaha, Nebraska, or in Colorado, where maybe it's more volunteer-based or it's done sporadically. So our chapters are really diverse throughout the whole country. Like some of them are have huge support systems and other people is just like a one storyteller show, you know. But we're trying to help all the chapters grow and find more people in our community to bring into the chapters. How did attendees respond? Oh my God. I mean, people love it. I mean, we're, we're really big for a reason. Like, you know, we make national news for a reason because people love coming to story hour, whether it's at a local library or in their school, at their local bookstore, yoga studio or church, we're everywhere. And of course we get lots of news coverage with the hate, but our community and our supporters like way outweigh any hatred that comes our way for sure. What kind of hatred and discrimination have y'all experienced? As a living as a queer person, just in general, you experience homophobia and transphobia on like a daily basis. And I think a lot of people who aren't in the LGBT community kind of forget that that exists. And then when you add being a drag artist on top of that and also being a, a queer person that does drag for children, it adds like even more layers of homophobia, transphobia, miscommunication. And that's always been the case since the beginning. When we first started, we started right during the Trump administration. We started this program sort of like in the response to a conservative new political era happening. And with that, people had questions and wondering, you know, oh, like they associate drag with adult entertainment, which is not wrong. Drag is an art form that can be expressed in many different ways. So, you know, we answered the question. It's like, oh, cool. Sounds great. 
And then when we went to New York, we got a lot of good press and a lot of good feedback. And then we started getting some hatred and some pushback. But it was very tame. It was just churchgoers across the street praying or just kind of like a peaceful protest, which we're all about. We're all about civil rights and the right to protest. But as of lately, the hate is different. It's organized. It's fueled by, you know, white supremacy groups and hate groups that come in with intentions of intimidation and using homophobic and transphobic slurs and inciting violence and also spreading really harmful information about queer people in general and our program. So that's where it's changed is this organized hate crime aspect that we haven't historically had to add into our safety protocols, but now it's the forefront of how we view digital and physical safety for everybody. How has it impacted you and your organization and your mission moving forward? It can be scary at times, but we have performers who are more cautious about doing story hours, and especially in like open spaces. This hate crime in San Lorenzo happens during Pride, and as well as the U-Haul situation in the Midwest, it made a lot of people think twice or really make sure our safety protocols are in place before doing events. But it's also made people want to do them twice as much. It becomes a reason that we are a needed program. And our mission is to help kids explore difference. So when they grow up, they won't be committing hate crimes or be tolerant of different types of people in the world. Because, you know, you're going to grow up, you're going to meet a non-binary person, you're going to meet a gay person, you're going to meet a drag queen or a king on the street. And we want all humans to just accept each other's differences and find beauty in that we live in such a diverse world. And that's part of our mission. How can people help? You could be an ally in so many different ways. With Story Hour, I think a really big thing that everybody can do is just correct false information. When you hear a bigoted statement or something homophobic or transphobic, you know, there's lots of many microaggressions happening all the time. And being a great ally is stepping in and saying things when no one's around to like be it or you get praised for it. That's like a really good start. And then we would love to have you find events that are happening in your neighborhoods and communities. What is in the future for Drag Queen Story Hour? You know, we have so many programs that we do that not a lot of people know about. Like, you know, people know that we do kids in public schools and libraries, but maybe what they don't know is those story hours can be bilingual, they can be multilingual, do indigenous story hours and black voices story hours. We work with kids with autism and other special needs. We work with senior citizens in New York City. Um, we do book clubs for middle schoolers and go into high schools and do GSA meetings or drama club visits. We do lots of diverse programming that I wish more people knew about the scope of how we serve our community. So yeah, we're just going to be moving along and no rest for the wicked for us. We'll just keep going. What are you doing right now? Are you getting ready for an event? I am. When I'm not executive directing, I also do drag in New York City, and my drag persona does very early in the evening charity events. I'm doing a drag bingo in the early evening, so and we're raising money for a queer softball league, which will be really exciting. What is your website? Our website is dragqueenstoryhour.org. We are also on the Instagram at dragqueenstoryhour, and I'm very proud of TikToking my way with story hours. Well, thank you so much. That was Jonathan Hamilt, Executive Director with Drag Queen Story Hours in Austin, Texas. This has been Liz Ross for This Way Out. Goodbye for now until we meet again.
Thanks for Finding This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Some program material this week came from Joe Bainline and M.R. Raquel, produced by Brian DeShazer. Thanks also to Janet Mason and to Liz Ross. Some of the other music you heard came from Hamilton, the 1928 All-Star Orchestra, and from Ms. Tear on the Queer Kid Stuff YouTube channel. Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Yavana Foundation, and donors Paul Bannon and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Thank you. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and all of us at This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org and on KAOS Olympia, Washington, to RRR Gladesville, New South Wales, WLSL St. Leo, Dade City, Florida, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.